The life of an actor is a difficult one, full of rejection, heartbreak, and worst of all, people who are hard work. As such, every actor has that one role in their past that they leave conspicuously absent from the resume. But you never know when the past will come back to bite you. Episode 4, The Role of a Lifetime. Lanchbury Hospital stood outside the village of Lanchbury some 15 miles north of Eastbourne and was, to Guy Hardcastle's eye, parodically gothic. There was not an archless window to be found on the building's grim facade. As Hardcastle shepherded his students from the coach, an uncharacteristic silence fell over the group. Somewhere, up among the pinnacles and spires, a bat coughed. Let's have some smiles, folks, Hardcastle told the kids, his words making milky clouds in the cold air. We're here to cheer these people up, remember? It was not one of his more convincing line readings. Inside, the hospital betrayed its 19th century trappings with white linoleum flooring and an overwhelming antiseptic scent. Guy was not one of those people for whom the hospital smell was an unwelcome memento mori, it was always preferable, he reasoned, to whatever it had covered up. His GCSE drama class, on the other hand, were clearly rattled. Their walk to the hospital's chapel was entirely absent the off-colour jokes and snide comments which ordinarily accompanied their passage through the world. Now and then they would pass a patient, or was resident the more accurate term, Guy wondered, and the class would collectively hold their breath as the pyjamaed figure shuffled by, quite oblivious. How nerve-wracking that age was, Guy remembered, when nothing was certain, and it felt as if there was something lurking around every corner waiting to pop out and boggle its eyes at you. Once they were in the chapel, preparing the chancel as their stage, the students settled in a little, and the mood changed to the pre-performance excitement that felt to Guy as familiar as a warm hug. If you had nothing else in the theatre, you had anticipation. He would miss this batch after they left next term. A decade ago, had he known he would end up teaching, Guy would have decried his current self as a failure, who wasn't even cut out for acting in the first place. Maybe that was true, he supposed, but he no longer cared. Teaching had its rewards. It was much like directing in its way, only in a real production of The Importance of Being Earnest, if Lady Bracknell couldn't muster the requisite bemusement with which to say, A handbag! You could fire her and bring in an actress who knew what she was bloody doing. While an out-of-school performance had been part of the drama department's curriculum since Guy had first assumed his post, Lanchbury Hospital was a new venue, and he was unsure what to expect from the audience. It wouldn't be the criminally insane, would it? He was certain of that. But would they be lucid? Would they respond to Wilde's beloved comedy of manners, or find it no more engrossing than a blue bottle crawling over wallpaper? Regardless, it would be a good challenge for the class. Unpredictable audiences were a fact of life to a working actor. The sooner the kids were faced with it, Guy felt, the better. The performance was to commence at 1pm. At 22, a nurse entered the chapel and Guy informed her that they were ready to open the doors. A few minutes later, the punters were brought in and arranged by the nurses on the single aisle of pews. 
There were a dozen or so patients, the majority of whom looked to be in their fifties or older. The remainder varied from middle age down to one or two poor souls who scarcely looked older than Guy's students. The more wakeful of them were handily placed by the nurses in the front row, where they goggled at the portable lights and set furnishings which now decorated the chancel. Guy stood at the rear of the chapel, where a card table was unfolded, atop which was a small console allowing him to control the stage lights, and a portable cassette player currently playing a tape of chamber music. He had his finger poised on the volume fader, ready to signal the show to begin, when he noticed a face looking back at him from the audience. A half-second of blankness. Then a sickening jolt of recognition, like an icicle piercing his bowel. The face had shown no emotion before turning back towards the stage. It was the face of a young man, not yet twenty. The last time Guy had seen it, it was not yet ten. It was the face of Archie Nolan. Long before the school, before £15,000 and 190 days off a year, there had been the flat in Shepherd's Bush. Guy had been happy there. He'd had a flash car, designer clothes and money to burn. It was all thanks to Zaggles. Zaggles were a kind of pickled onion-flavoured crisp, a puffed corn snack, technically, and Guy was the star of their television adverts, although he wouldn't know it to look at him. Guy portrayed Mr Zag, an eight-foot, googly-eyed, furry, purple monster with a serious craving for pickled onions. He had got the role quite unexpectedly. Michael Baldwin, an acquaintance of Guy's from drama school, had rung up out of the blue and asked if he was still acting. Despite my better judgement, Guy had said. Yourself? Not quite, Michael replied. I'm in puppetry now, at a workshop, kids' TV mostly, and adverts. Oh, really? said Guy, feeling his eyes glaze over. Yes, that's why I'm calling. We've been working on something for this crisp company, and I thought of you for it. Would you like an audition? Guy, as it turned out, was perfect for the part. At six foot six and eighteen stone, he had the frame for it. He was also capable of using his false vocal cords to talk in a deep, bestial growl, a skill he had made frequent use of in school as part of an impression he liked to do of an announcer in an American movie trailer. Coming this summer... After two rounds of auditions, the second of which involved getting inside and operating the full-body puppet of Mr. Zag, Guy was told the role was his. The significance of this, however, did not strike him until he was informed of his fee per advert and just how many adverts were planned with this character. There in the production company offices, as he ran through the maths in his head, he realised that these were life-changing numbers. He signed the contracts with a trembling hand. Each ad followed the same formula, a scenario would be presented in which there was an expectation of pickled onions, a family picnic, for example, or a comically fancy soiree. Somebody present would inquire as to the whereabouts of the pickled onions, and upon learning of their absence, the inquirer would say something like, well, that's all right with me, but don't tell Mr. Zag, at which point the camera would rapidly pan to Mr. Zag, also in attendance, who, upon overhearing this, would fly into a rage and begin destroying anything in sight, knocking things off shelves, upturning tables, and so on. Luckily, Mr. Zag would soon be calmed by somebody, usually one of more brightly dressed young children, announcing that everything was fine, for there were Zaggles to be had. And Zaggles had twice as much pickled onion flavour as pickled onions themselves. Everybody present would settle down to a feast of Zaggles, and Mr. Zag would face the camera and say his catchphrase, Zaggles know their onions. 
Once the first spot went to air, things began to change very quickly for Guy. He was able to rejoin Equity, his membership lapsed after being unable to afford the dues. Then he was signed by an agent, Janet Lovejoy, with the promise of more work, primarily voiceover. Then he moved out of his parents' house in Bromley, where he had been living rent-free since leaving uni. Before he knew it, he was making a very nice living indeed. The adverts were a hit. The character of Mr. Zag proved very popular with the target market, and the packaging of Zaggles was redesigned to include his image. Promotional soft toys were made, and every bag of Zaggles came with the chance of winning a token which could be sent off for a free one. You could hardly go half an hour watching ITV or Channel 4 without seeing one of the Mr. Zag spots. Once the novelty of his newfound wealth had worn off, however, Guy found himself once again feeling stagnant. He noted a peculiar resentment now when he saw Mr. Zag's permanently manic face plastered up on a billboard or printed on the back cover of a magazine. That ought to be my face, he thought. Everyone in the country knows that face, and not a soul knows me. It was time to make a change. He wouldn't give up the Zaggles job, the money was too good, but there was to be no more resting on his laurels. He put in a call to his agent one morning, the minute her office opened, and told her if she didn't have a theatre or TV audition for him in a week's time, he would be forced to seek new representation. The threat came through, and by the time a week had passed, Guy's diary was full up with auditions through the next month. That, it turned out, had been the easy part. For a whole summer, Guy attended audition after audition without getting a single callback. The closest he came was at a reading for The Tempest in the part of Caliban. He had noticed a good deal of nodding from the casting director as he delivered his monologue, which reassured him and strengthened his performance. Hmm, the woman said when he had finished. I rather like that. Guy was surprised, as normally they simply thanked him, then ushered him from the room. Oh, I'm glad, he said. Yes, she continued. I like that growly quality you use in the voice. What does it remind me of? Not a clue, said Guy. Still, he heard nothing back. By September, Guy was all but resigned to a lifetime of anonymous service for Zaggles. Then, out of nowhere... Salvation. This is a bit odd, Janet Lovejoy told Guy over the phone, but you won't give a damn when you find out who it's for. What's this now? Well, you, that is, the fellow from the crisp adverts, have been asked for personally by none other than Clement Nolan. I beg your pardon? Clement Nolan, Guy knew, was a West End bigwig, the type of producer who never had fewer than three shows running concurrently. He was a name you saw on posters and heard on Radio 4 without ever tying a face to. You heard me. You ought to meet with him at his house. God knows what it's for, but trust me, it'll be worth it. Nolan's house in the South Downs was a 19th-century manor in the Tudor Revival style and was as quaint as it was possible for a six-bed, four-bath with indoor pool annex to be. Guy found it without too much trouble and was buzzed straight through the electrified gate without needing to identify himself. He parked on a neatly pebbled drive next to a sporty silver something or other. The door to the house opened and a housekeeper ushered him in. "'You are the actor?' the woman asked, already leading him through the house. "'I'm an actor, yes.' Guy replied. 
He thought it best to leave some ambiguity, lest the whole thing turn out to be some farcical misunderstanding. The mistress is expecting you, said the housekeeper. The mistress? They came through to a sparklingly clean kitchen. At the far end, in a kind of adjoining sunroom, a woman sat at a dining table. Mr Hardcastle, she said. Her voice was dark and syrupy as molasses. How do you do? Please join me. The housekeeper scuttled over to the table and pulled out a chair for Guy. He sat. Something to drink? I'm having coffee. Coffee would be wonderful, thank you. There was a pot on the table in front of her, and fresh cups and cream and sugar. The housekeeper prepared a cup for Guy, who shook his head when cream was offered. My name, said the mistress, is Desiree Nolan. Clement is my husband. I see, said Guy. A flurry of panic hit him, as if he was about to be accused of some crime he had no knowledge of. I'm afraid you've been brought here under false pretenses. It was I who invited you today. In the interest of clarity, you ought to know that my husband knows nothing of this meeting. He's never heard of you, in fact. Guy nodded, though felt no clarity whatsoever. However, I can assure you that if this meeting goes well and you end up working for me, an introduction will be made upon completion of the job, along with a persuasive argument that further work be found for you. Before we go ahead, does that sound agreeable to you? Guy cleared his throat. In doing so, he accidentally made his throat overly wet and had to swallow down a glob of spit before he could speak. <coughs> That's fine by me. Good. Mrs Nolan settled back in her chair and looked out through the glass wall beside her onto the grounds. Outside, a pheasant was peacefully wandering the grass. Good, she repeated. It is you in the puppet suit, isn't it, Mr Zag? Yes, I play Mr Zag. In all the adverts? Every one. Perfect. Mrs Nolan beckoned the housekeeper, who had been lurking in the shadows behind them. She brought over a porcelain tray on which sat a crystal ashtray and a gilded cigarette dispenser. The whole ensemble clashed dreadfully. Help yourself, said Mrs Nolan. The cigarettes were Sobrani black Russians, long black cylinders with gold filter tips. Guy took one along with a match from a little paper matchbook next to the dispenser. The paper was matte, duck egg blue with white trim and had Clement Nolan printed on it in a calligraphic hand. The matches inside had blue heads. You must take a handful of these before you go. We have boxes and boxes of them in the storage room. Forgive me if this is forward, Mrs Nolan, but I must confess I'm anxious to find out more about this job you have to offer. Of course. You're a busy man, I'm sure. Just like Clement. Clement and I have a son, Archie. He's just turned nine. Or is about to turn nine, I forget which. I'm afraid he is a little terror. He torments our staff. He leaves a wake of destruction behind him wherever he goes. I understand how this must sound to you and that parents are bound to exaggerate about their children one way or the other, but I cannot overstress how much anguish my son has caused his father and I over the last few years. What you see before you is a woman, a mother, at the end of her tether. And of course we've searched for help from all the usual channels. Archie's had tutors and minders and all sorts of paediatric specialists. It never takes. 
Whenever anybody gets close to pinpointing the problem, he clamps up like an oyster. He's as good as gold, a model child. And, of course, they say there's nothing wrong with the boy. He's just a bright young fellow who's bound to get bored once in a while when understimulated. And as soon as we've discharged them from our employ, it starts up again. Tantrums, runaway attempts, petty thuggery. As Mrs. Nolan spoke, her posture became haggard. By the time her cigarette had burnt to the filter, her chin was nearly resting on the table. There is, however, one thing that Archie responds to. You see, he is frightened, absolutely petrified, in fact, of Mr. Zag. You've never seen anything like it. If one of your adverts comes on the television, he turns as white as ivory. He becomes completely silent and rushes from the room. On one occasion, the door was blocked while the hallway adjoining the sitting room was being redecorated, and he screamed and wailed until it was opened and he could run away. Some time ago, I realised that when Archie was up to his mischief, the only thing that would stop it was the threat of Mr. Zag. Archie, I'll say, if you don't stop that this instant, I shall be calling Mr. Zag, and he will visit you in your room tonight. It worked a treat, but after the fourth or fifth time, he must have realised it was an idle threat and the trick stopped working. That's the job I have for you, you see. I want to make good on my promise. I want him to learn that bad actions have bad consequences. Mr. Zag must visit him the next time he misbehaves. Guy didn't know what to say. He realized it had been some time since he ashed his cigarette, and as he brought it from his mouth to the ashtray, some of it spilled onto the tabletop. He tried to brush the fallen ash into his hand, but in doing so, smeared it into the white tablecloth. I... Uh, sorry. That's all right, said Mrs. Nolan. The housekeeper had already arrived with a damp cloth and a dustpan and brush. Have another cigarette, if you like. Guy took another. You... <clears throat> you realise... Uh, that is... I'm afraid I don't own the costume myself. I don't have access to it when I'm not shooting an ad. Of course, I understand this. I've already contacted my husband's costume team and had them start work on an exact replica. They're very good, just you wait until you see it. Right. I just can't help but feel... Forgive me for saying so, is it not just a little bit cruel to play on the boy's fears in such a way? I don't mean to presume he is your son, after all. I, I uh, only worry that it might be a touch extreme. Mrs. Nolan looked at Guy with dry, penetrating eyes. It is a last resort. I've tried everything else. Of course, you may think of it however you like. I'm only interested in whether or not you will do it. Be assured I can offer you far more money than you'd make from even a dozen Zaggles adverts, as well as that introduction to Clement. Guy thought of the shows he knew Clement Nolan had running at that very moment, in some of the most famous theatres in London. He thought of all the big names he knew had come up out of West End shows Nolan had produced. Guy accepted. Mrs. Nolan didn't tell Guy precisely when he'd be needed, only that it would be very soon and that he should keep his evenings free for the next week. Only two days passed from their meeting before the call came. Guy had already been rung twice by the same persistent friend urging him to come out to the Queen Adelaide for a drink that evening and answered expecting a third. Instead, he heard only Mrs. Nolan. Tonight. You're free? Absolutely. 
When do you want me? As soon as possible. All right, Guy said, but the line had already gone dead. It was getting on for eight o'clock by the time he neared the Nolan house. About half a mile down the road from the gate, in an anonymous lay-by, the housekeeper was stood beneath an umbrella waiting for him. They left the car in the lay-by and carried on up the road on foot. Passing the main gate, they followed a narrow, muddy path along the property's exterior wall. It brought them to a chipped wooden door, half covered with peeling green paint and secured with a padlock bolt. This was the gardener's entrance. On the other side of the door was a small shed, which the housekeeper briefly disappeared into. When she returned, she was holding a woollen flat cap and a pair of Wellington boots. These she handed to Guy. Just for the walk to the house, she said, in case he looks out the window. Her voice was surprisingly clear and sharp, Guy thought, for someone so quiet. In his disguise, Guy followed her over the grounds to the house. They entered through the glass doors into the kitchen, where Mrs Nolan, as before, was sat at the table. Archie, she announced without greeting, destroyed today an antique crystal decanter. It has been in my family for three generations. He took it from its place in the cabinet and he smashed it on the ground. It is ruined. I said to him when I saw what he had done, You've done it now, Archie. Just you wait. Just you wait until Mr. Zag comes for you tonight. Then I sent him directly to his room. He's in there now. Mrs. Nolan turned to the housekeeper. Show Mr. Hardcastle the way upstairs. The housekeeper, after signalling to Guy to move as quietly as possible, brought him upstairs and along the corridor. A heat-shrunk plastic sign tacked to the door told Guy in bold letters, which was Archie's room. They came to the door after that, which was unadorned. The housekeeper, with care to move slowly and silently, unlocked it, opened it, and shut Guy inside. Through the door, Guy heard her return to the boys' room, open the door, and tell him it was bath time. Laid out on the bed, lifeless and hollow, was Mr. Zag. Guy inspected the bulbous purple head. Just like the real one, it had a puppeteerable mouth and eyes. The wearer's right arm, elevated above their real head and supported by a wire brace, controlled the head, while the false right arm of the costume stayed pinned to the side of the chest. If ever Mr. Zag was required to be shown using both arms at once, an alternate suit was used with a head that remained static. The recreation was astounding. Nolan's team had re-engineered every detail of Mr. Zag, with, Guy was pleasantly surprised to find, higher quality materials. Zag's head was much lighter than the original, and Guy found he could manipulate the mouth much faster. As he finished getting dressed, there was a quiet knock on the door, and the housekeeper entered. She eyed Mr. Zag nervously, and looked quite shocked when he said, in character, Ready? Wordlessly, she led him into Archie's room, and opened the wardrobe for him. It was the built-in kind, quite spacious, and room had already been cleared for him, as well as a chair placed inside to sit on while he waited. The housekeeper shut him in and left the room. It was warm inside the Matryoshkin double enclosure of the costume and the wardrobe, but the discomfort of his elevated arm kept Guy alert. A quarter of an hour passed before he finally heard, just barely through the muffle of his coverings, the door of the bedroom open. Through the mesh windows sewn into Mr. Zag's neck, he could make out a crack of brightness through the wardrobe doors as the bedroom light was switched on, and then, half a minute later, switched off, followed by the door clicking shut. That was as much as he could hope for in the way of a signal that his target was now in bed. The longer he spent in Mr. Zag, the more aware Guy always became of his own body, 
The beating of his heart he could feel not only in his chest but his ears, and he became conscious of the taste of his own breath. No matter how chill conditions outside of the suit, the wearer began to sweat. When filming an advert, Guy rarely needed to stay in the full suit for longer than ten minutes at a time. It had been more than double that now, and he was not keen to try and set a new record. But the longer he waited, the more unexpected, the more shocking his appearance would be. Guy gritted his teeth and waited a further ten minutes before making his entrance. Careful not to jostle the door in front of him, he stood up from the chair. He momentarily stood on tiptoes, stretching his legs and back to limber up. Then, leading with Mr. Zag's head, he burst out into the bedroom. The wardrobe door slammed hard against the wall, and at the sound young Archie Nolan bolted upright in bed. When he saw the figure of his nightmares before him, not shrunken and blurred on the television screen, but stood there, at the end of his own bed, a towering frame bumping against his own lightshade hanging from his own ceiling, he jumped back like a startled flea, pinning his little torso against the wooden headboard of his bed. Mummy told you I would come, didn't she? Mr. Zag bellowed. You didn't believe Mummy, did you, Archie? At the sound of his name in the guttural snarl of his greatest fear, Archie Nolan screwed his eyes shut tight and let out the loudest, highest scream he had ever made. The sound punctured the air and went on for what felt like minutes before transmuting into deep, pained, stomach-churning sobs. At these, Guy felt his job complete and with all the deftness allowed by an eight-foot foam suit, swiftly left through the bedroom door. Mrs. Nolan stood in the hallway. Now that he saw her standing, Guy noted that she was a very tall woman, over six feet. Once he removed Mr. Zag's head, she gave a slight nod. That ought to change things, she intoned. On the other side of the door, Archie's sobs continued unabated. Come downstairs when you're ready and we'll sort out your payment. She left Guy there in the hallway. Guy drove away from the Nolan house with more cash than he'd ever held tucked in his pocket in a brown envelope. Mrs Nolan promised that he'd soon hear from her with regards to meeting with her husband. When he arrived home, Guy felt restless. Taking a few hundred quid from his wages, he ventured out into the night, to the Queen Adelaide, where his persistent friend was propping up the bar and joined him. Soon, all was fuzz and oblivion. He was woken the following day, shortly after noon, by the telephone. In his post-inebriate state, he was unable to reach it in time to answer the call, but a minute later it rang again. It was Janet Lovejoy. She told Guy, in a neutral, composed tone, that he had been sacked by Zaggles. In addition, he was no longer represented by Janet and her agency. She wished him luck and bid him farewell. Over the next few days, through the newspapers, Guy was able to piece together what had happened. Renowned theatrical producer Clement Nolan, it was announced, had filed for divorce from his wife of six years, Desiree. He had applied for full custody of their son, Archibald, and was expected to be granted it as he was the boy's biological father. Desiree, on the other hand, had formally adopted the boy upon her marriage to Clement, his birth mother, Clement's first wife, having died in childbirth. Further details about the nature of the marriage and the background to the divorce gradually slipped out over the following months. Desiree and Archie had never taken to one another. As the boy grew, so did his stepmother's animosity for him, and quietly, out of Clement's sight, 
her dislike had expressed itself through verbal and mental abuse. The exact nature of how the truth had outed was never made public, only that it had involved misappropriation of Clement's professional resources on Desiree's part, and that one or more third parties, under Clement's employ, had abetted the mistreatment. Guy quickly found that not only had Clement Nolan had him released from his current arrangements, but that he was now blacklisted across the entirety of London's performing industry. For a few months he attempted to reinvigorate his career, having changed his working name to Diego Thorne, but they soon caught on. He would never act in this town again. A handbag, Lady Bracknell said blankly upon the chancel. Guy's hands were clammy as he operated the lighting console. He felt sick to his stomach, and his vision was tunnelling, but if he left the chapel there would be nobody to run the show's sound and lights. Desperately he began counting his breaths, a meditative practice he used with his students when warming up for a performance. After a few minutes he was calm enough to ignore the swirling turbulence in his head and focus on the play. Given the circumstances, the performance went rather well. The staff, and the more present of the residents, laughed and applauded where appropriate. The play actually ran almost ten minutes under what it had timed at in rehearsals, which Guy put down to nervous rushing and was not at all bothered by. Once the audience had cleared the chapel, he moved in double time himself, urging the students to clear away the set, props and equipment as fast as they could. Out in the grounds of Lanchbury Hospital, it had grown bitterly cold. Even standing near the open door of the coach as the students boarded it was a pleasant respite from the chill, as warm air rushed out onto Guy's face. After all the children were on board, as Guy was about to enter, he heard a call from back at the entrance to the hospital, and turned around, expecting to wave goodbye to a few of the residents. There, in front of the building's great oaken cathedral doors, was Archie Nolan. He was wrapped up in a puffy winter coat, and his arm was being held by a nurse. It must have been time for his afternoon walk. Guy stood motionless in the doorway of the coach and listened as Archie repeated his cry. Zaggle! 